So I made this simple basketball play, knowing that it's Carmelo Anthony, a guy who's hit game winners his entire career. He rose up, and, and as he shot it, I thought, well, that looks good. And we come away with the win, but it was a hard-fought contest. I don't mind necessarily the reseeding. I think that would be interesting. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I think I'm indifferent right now until I get the full explanation of how they would go about doing it. The midseason tournament is another thing. When you're a younger player, there's so much structure around you. You're trying not to make no mistakes. So like the way you play is completely different and it's timid. So I think his mindset changed, which allowed his game to change because he had more freedom. Welcome to the Fletcher Cox episode of Pull Up, That's Right, episode number 91. In about 20 minutes, we'll be talking to Brooklyn Nets point guard Spencer Dinwiddie. Talk about a guy who's probably going to be an all-star this season. You won't want to miss that. Currently in Minnesota, had a long, long road trip. We've gone through New Year's, I've gone through sickness, I've gone through 30 hours of sleep. Uh, playing in a game in Toronto where it's very cold to now about to play in a game in Minnesota. Luckily, we were able to get a win in D.C. as well as a win in Toronto, trying to wrap this trip up with a 3-2 and two record before we head back home. As you can tell from my voice, I'm still recovering from sickness. Wifey is sick as well. Um, I'm off the Z-Pack, Mucinex, Allegra D, tons of vitamin C, echinacea, fish oil, you name it, I've taken it, and um, it's starting to work, so I'm thankful for that. Shout out to the doctors and our team staff and trainers who've been with me every step of the way to make sure that um, I'm able to kind of come back as fast as possible. Jordan, I know you were sick recently as well. It's that time of the year. There's nothing like being sick. It's it's terrible, but it makes you really appreciate great health, honestly, yep. um, when you when you can't really do no, the things you normally do, like walking to the bathroom is a, is a real task because you're exhausted. Uh, you really appreciate the small things again, that's for sure. Man, it really does, see? And especially this time of the year, my you talked about your your situation, mine as well, and also my uh, my little guy has 101-degree fever. Jeez. My daughter has been coughing, so we got in our house, got to be very careful. But we were just talking, I wasn't even planning on asking about this, but you got to pack on one trip for Miami, Toronto, and Minnesota. <laughs> so what's your... Uh, like, do you have two different bags? Do you? <laughs> how do you? How do you prefer a trip like that? Honestly, I'm traveling with a lot of stuff. Um, I have a suitcase dedicated to wine, so I have a lot of wine. So, you know, staff, players, friends, you're on the road, maybe you're on the plane, whatever the case may be, able to have a glass of your choice uh, of your choosing. I know Melo's a big wine guy. We got some guys that enjoy wine on the team, so I always try to travel with something. Uh, so that I'm able to share. And then I have two other suitcases. I have a suitcase that's basically, you know, shorts, T-shirts, socks, shoes, drawers, toiletry bag, lotions, things of that nature. And then I have another suitcase that's like the actual clothes that I wear. So jeans, sweatpants, uh, room for coats. I had to pack for New Year's, so I had a suit. Um, wow. And an, an outfit to wear with wifey on New Year's. And then you got the Miami outfit, which is versatile because it could be 60 degrees, it could be 70 degrees, or it could be 45, 50. Um, and then you got the Toronto, Minnesota, so the Canada Goose, the leaning jackets, um, things that allow you to kind of stay warm. So I have those suitcases, and then the team travels with our Normatex for us. So I also have another suitcase for my Normatex. Um, 
as well. So that's a lot of luggage. Yeah, uh, our staff does an incredible job of, of of moving all that stuff off the bus, and uh, I commend their efforts because it's it's a lot to do, especially when it's seven degrees outside. Well, you don't have one of your you don't have Nas Little helping you out. He's a rookie. <laughs> I have him carrying some smaller stuff, uh, maybe my book bag, or if I if I know I'm not going to make the first bus to the airport, I might have him grab a grab a duffel bag from yours or take something to the first bus. That's fair. But for the most part, man, they 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 have it pretty easy. They don't have to do too much. <laughs> who was your guy who, that was demanding that you carried bags when you were a rookie? Did, was it Earl? Um, Earl was pretty lax. He didn't really make us do much. Um, I carried LA stuff a lot. His toiletry bag. He, he had a nice Louis Vuitton toiletry bag, but he never liked to carry it uh, post game. So I would take it to the plane for him, or, or get a book bag or duffel bag. Sometimes I would get food for some of the vets. So if there's a, a post game meal and they want to eat, but they have family they want to go talk to, um, they'll make their plate or whatever, and then just kind of hand me it, and I'll take it to the plane for them or put it in their seat uh, to make sure that they have it and don't have to carry it around. So just little stuff like that. Um, food pre-flights. I always had my Mickey Mouse book bag, so I was always able to put stuff in my Mickey Mouse book, that, book bag that they didn't want to carry. Um, it was really, it really wasn't that bad. It, it goes fast. It's like nine months in if you don't have a draft pick the next year, then it becomes like 18 months. That's not too bad. Well, I, I'm happy to hear that. Because I was just thinking, if you had, if you were carrying LA's Louis Vuitton bag, you could cop it as your own. <laughs> right? It was a dope toiletry bag, not going to lie. And I, I thought about asking for it. He probably would have gave me it if I would have asked for it, honestly. But I knew uh, as a rookie, you just kind of do your job. Um, you show up early. If they actually do something, you do it. Uh, you try to you try to blend in as much as possible while being cool, which is hard to do for a young guy adjusting to so many different things and going through injuries. But after a few months, I kind of picked up on how I needed to maneuver and, and how I had to uh, behave. And I think the vets liked me after a while because I was just very cooperative after being so resistant early on. Okay, so before we move on, I do have one more rookie question. I never even asked you off the air, I don't think, which is not what was your welcome to the NBA moment, but who was the first guy that really like busted you one night? Like, Who was the guy that got you the first time in a game? Oh, I was going to say in a game. I was like, I, I get scored on practice a lot. I had a lot of great offensive players uh, on my teams historically, but in a game, Lou Williams and Mono Ginobili. Ginobili went to work on me. Jamal Crawford went to work. Um, those guys were all just really good in picking roles. They play on teams to where if you don't stop a play, they run it again. You know, it, people talk about the old NBA. I wasn't really a part of the old NBA, but seven years ago when I was a rookie, um, the San Antonio Spurs, there's a lot of those veteran teams, Tim Duncan was still playing. Um, they had a very good understanding of how to execute, how to win games, and how to exploit mismatches. And when a rookie came into the game, most of the time the team you're playing against would run a play for whoever you were guarding because they knew you were younger. And chances are you'd probably make a mistake, maybe have a breakdown in coverage, maybe not read the pick and roll correctly or get hung up on screen. So they would go to Ginobili early and often and it would be a high pick and roll and he would get space and euro he would stop and shoot threes if i went under and then i would get switched on to tony parker after guard ginobili and then they would go three fists or run wedge and he would get middle and shoot floaters and then he would bingo and go baseline and do a spin move and lay it up so there was just a lot of uh interesting coverages um i went through early on in my career because i was guarding so many different 
unique scores from two guards to point guards to three men who could either score in pick and roll, score in ISO situations, or be great off the ball like a J.J. Redick who just moved around constantly and really wore you down physically. So I would say those are the guys that I had a lot of trouble with early on, especially Mono Ginobili um, because he was just so crafty and scored in bunches, especially when we played in San Antonio. That sounds really fun, man. <laughs> I mean, I don't know I don't know what's worse, that or having to, you know, carry around LaMarcus's uh, $5,000 $5, toiletry bags. But either way... You're uh, you're in for it. So, okay. Um, I guess that's a good transition to great scores. Carmelo Anthony last night, and we're, we're, we are recording this on Wednesday, January eighth. He had a game winner in Toronto at Air Canada, and uh, I'd love for you to take us through that play because watching it, I definitely thought you were going to go with the step back. You were going left. It seemed like you were in a good rhythm. But then uh, his defender helped, and you kicked it to him, and he did the rest. So take us through the play. Yeah, the the play originally was for them to get the ball into Dane, but if Dane wasn't open, I was I was to you know find a way to get to the ball with Melo taking it out, and uh, they double teamed Dane off the inbounds, and I was single covered, and I was able to break free from Rondé Hollis Jefferson. Shout out to my guy Rondé. Uh, recently had a birthday, but I caught the ball about third. 13 seconds left on the clock, um, 13.6 or whatever it was. And I could have attacked right away because there was an opening with everybody kind of towards the half court. But I knew that we probably wanted to just take one shot and have a chance for a rebound in the event that we miss and either you win the game or the game goes into overtime. So I just kind of waited around the, you know, 13, 14 foot foot mark in the uh, right corner of the basket. And I just kind of triple threaded and waited and read the defense. I thought about going baseline. I thought about what moves I was going to do and the counters to them and just kind of waited. And then I attacked uh, his front foot towards the middle to see like if he would drop the gate and, and see what type of space he would give me. And his man, Melo's man was one pass away and he kind of looked and lunged a little bit like as, as if he was going to either give a fake help or commit. So I made the the simple basketball play, knowing that it's Carmelo Anthony, a guy who's hit game winners his entire career, and understanding that Melo had the hot hand. You know, he was very efficient. He had that bounce in his step. He had hit big shots throughout the game and had just recently hit a big three um, in the right corner. You know, one or two minutes prior to that, I made an easy decision. I passed it to him, hoping that he wouldn't settle. He didn't settle and shoot the three. He uh, kind of jabbed or whatever, got that one, two dribbles to the uh, free throw line area, a shot that he's taken and making hundreds of thousands of times in his career. He rose up, and, and as he shot it, I thought, well, that looks good. And my only hope as I passed it to him was that it would be three, two, one shot goes in, buzzer goes off, game over, like memorable moment. Um, he hits the shot, but there's still three seconds left. So I was just telling him, like, like, damn, my bad, bro. Like, great shot. But I tried to give it to you so that you had time to make a decision, but also so that they didn't have time to get the ball back. And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, that was perfect timing because I still had time to kind of counter if I needed to uh, when he caught the ball with about eight, nine seconds left. So things worked out. Kyle Lowry had a great look for a three. Uh, he ended up missing slightly long, about a half inch off, and we come away with the win. But it was a it was a hard fought contest. I struggled mightily out there, you know, coming off of uh, being in the bed for you know two or three days. But I did enough to help us win. Uh, made the right play to mellow down the stretch, and we got enough stops defensively in a hard fought game against a, a very tough team who's also battling a lot of injuries, just as we are. Both Mello and Derrick Rose had. Uh 
de facto game winners last night. Derek had a that's cool kind of basically yeah. Matt Mello's patented pull up going left and Rose's patented floater from about six seven feet. Um, it was a nice moment to see uh, both of them have great nights and great moments. Dame said after the game, he thought it could be a a launch point for you guys, and that the team feels like um, you know this could be a special moment. It was also great to see Nurk celebrate, knowing how close he is. You've said for a while, CJ, that you're a couple weeks away from really turning the season around. Um, we're about halfway through. Where do you feel like you're at now as, as a as a team? Now, I think that was a good win for us. We're trending in the right direction. You know, coming off that win. Um, I think we had a good win in, in D.C. over the Wizards, a team who's obviously injured but playing better, having picked up wins against the Celtics, uh, the Miami Heat, and another playoff team in the last week. But I think we just got to continue to inch forward defensively, play play more games similar to how we did um, against the Raptors. That'll be very important. And down the stretch of games, continue to be efficient and effective. And I think we give ourselves a chance to make a real push. Obviously, the other teams in the 6-8, to 6-12 to 12 range, you got the Phoenix Suns, you got the Oklahoma City Thunder, you got a lot of different teams who are playing well. So we just got to continue to tighten up. Don't go anywhere because coming up next, special guest, Brooklyn Nets point guard Spencer Dinwiddie and all-star favorite. We want to welcome a special guest. He hails from Colorado. He was drafted in 2014 draft, second round, 38th pick. He's played for the Detroit Pistons, the Grand Rapids Drive, the Windy City Bulls, and most recently and currently the Brooklyn Nets. He's playing very, very, very well. I use all the varies because it's borderline great. He's having an all-star caliber year, averaging over 22 points per game. I'd say about 23 right now, six assists, career highs in just about everything. Brooklyn has... Done more than just stay afloat without Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. They've played well, been a 500 or plus 500 team most of the season, and a large part of that is due to Spencer Dinwiddie. So shout out to Spencer Dinwiddie for not only the way he's playing right now, but for coming on the pull-up pod, bro. I appreciate you. Welcome aboard. Thanks for calling in and stopping by Jordan's house. Personal invitation <laughs> Personal. to Mr. Schultz's house, and he pulled up. Hey, man, I appreciate you guys for having me. Um you know, obviously, you are a great player in this league, somebody I look up to, and, uh, you know, George's a good dude, so I had to pull up. No, I appreciate it, man, and, and you're playing extremely well. A lot of people have been talking about how you played. Last year, uh, you had a borderline all-star year. D'Angelo Russell goes down in the first part of the season. You start cooking. They start talking about, is he an all-star? Is he not an all-star? You fast-forward a year later, you guys sign Kyrie Irving. Kyrie goes down. You start cooking again. Now they're talking about, is he an all-star? Is he not? all-star just kind of walk me through the last couple years for you personally um, what you've been able to kind of overcome and accomplish and kind of like your mindset right now and I appreciate you saying you look up to my game man Uh, I do appreciate that I I work extremely hard on my craft and I like to say that I got it the the unconventional way and I think you can relate to that so that's kind of why I think we're both fans of each other because it's it's through hard work a lot of adversity and a lot of self-confidence definitely uh to your point you know you when when you don't have the road necessarily paid for you, you gotta you gotta put in that work and you gotta kinda find out um who you are and 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 hold on to that that core belief of the type of player you can be. Um and and really thrive on on that confidence from from within, you know, and, and 
because people aren't going to gas you. You know what I mean? Like it's only going to come from within and, and trusting that work. So, uh, you know, in, in that way, I think we're very similar. And, you know, the last couple of years, it's, you know, you, you kind of get in where you fit in, you know, when when D'Lo or Kyrie or, you know, whoever are on the court and, and they're doing well, you have to play kind of a complimentary role, stay aggressive, uh, try to keep doing whatever it takes to help the team win games. And, and when they're not in, then you kind of step up and take a little bit different role, a little bit a little bit more volume, a little bit more, uh, you know, leadership. People look to a little bit differently. And, um, you know, wh- whatever role they kind of give you at the time, you got to kind of be ready and willing to step up into that role. And, um, you know, if you don't put in the, the requisite work, then um, you won't be ready when your number's called. And I feel like fortunately, uh, more times than not, you know, when, when my number has been called or when the big shot is needed to be taken, I've been fortunate enough to kind of come through with it. I like that. I like that answer. That's a great answer. Great response. And I think you're handling things the right way. I, a lot of people don't understand outside of the actual NBA world, people that play every day and see it every day understand the quality and caliber of talent that's around our league. But a lot of it comes down to opportunity. And I think, you know, I think my question for you, you know, following this, obviously understanding the work you've put in, did you see yourself getting to this point? In 2016, when you were in Detroit, and I think Detroit ended up letting you go at one point or another, did you see yourself coming back to this point where you would end up hitting a game winner against the same team that let you go and uh, be in this position to where um, you're making double-digit millions per year, you're trending upward, you're in a position where you're being talked about as an all-star? Did you foresee this? Because I think a lot of times, you know, when we're working towards something, we sometimes forget about our emotions throughout the process. And me being seven years in now, like I still remember year two, year three, uh, where I was going from DMPs to like trade him, he's garbage, to what's his position, to like, okay, like he's good. Now how good is he? Like it's it's crazy how the, the narrative changes, but mentally we go through like a roller coaster of emotions. And I think sometimes people don't ne- necessarily see that. They only see our play and how much we play. For sure. For sure. To to your point, I I definitely can't sit up here and say I necessarily saw all this um in terms of opportunity to your to like like you said. Um I believed in the in the talent that I have, and and that confidence has been able to carry me and, and help me produce. Um, I actually told Stanley Johnson uh, in my second year when I wasn't playing and I was going to get traded, I was like, the one thing I'm going to do is come back and get a game winner against Detroit. I was like, if I don't play, you know, big minutes or anything like for the rest of my career, like the one thing I'm going to do is do that. Um, you know, that that burned inside me. Like I wanted I wanted to do that really really bad, but um, in terms of like being a twenty point score and and you know leading a team for large stretches of a season and you know or and trying to be a focal point or you know a auxiliary piece on a playoff caliber team um I knew I could I definitely during those dark moments you know wasn't sure if it would come and so you know it, it's in a lot of ways, a lot about opportunity. They're they're phenomenal players. There, I mean, you you have a brother that's overseas that you know kills the the summer tournament every year. So you know, it's, it's more than just the four fifty in the league. I mean, the top thousand players in the world probably could play in the NBA, obviously. And and you know, to be in that selective group, and then obviously to be you know a person that's productive in that selective group, um, it, it's definitely a blessing and not something that's lost on me. I've asked the same question to CJ Spence, which is that. I wonder, given especially for you coming in and not playing right away, 
and having to wait your turn, did, was there ever a point where you doubted yourself and whether or not you've, not that you fit, but that you were ever get that opportunity? Um, for sure. 1000%. Um, in terms of questioning the opportunity, um, the, the thing that kept me going and, and kept me from going overseas and, and inspired me to go to the D league and try to get back in was because I was killing in practice my first two years. And so it was like, I, I just, I couldn't believe that that was like the end of my story, the end of my career, like that I was just supposed to go overseas and, you know, play 10, 15 years or whatever over there and then just call it a career was because I was playing so well in practice. I was like, I just really don't believe this is going to be the end for me. And that's what prompted me to take the the D-League route um, after I got cut by Chicago instead of going overseas. Um, if, if not for the practice performances, I probably would have just took the money and went overseas. What was the hardest part about the D-League? Was it the fact that you were having to, you know, f- take multiple flights to cities, play in front of small, basically nobody, play in small arenas? Or was it the fact that you felt like you belonged in the NBA? Like, how hard was that process for you? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not an easy process at all. You know, sometimes there's, six hour bus rides after a game and you're getting in a city at, you know, 6 a.m. for a 2 p.m. game. And, and, you know, the, the cities are not LA or New York. They're Erie and Sioux Falls and Fort Wayne and stuff like that. So, you know, the, the travel, um, the, the accommodations are, are not easy, but, you know, going to the, the D league, uh, my coach Nate Linzer at the time, he was like, you know, I, you, you played really well in Bulls training camp. I know you feel like you should be in the NBA. I feel like you should be in the NBA. Um, you know, here's the ball. Go go rock out. And like, you know, you respect me. I respect you and, and play your way out of here. And so, you know, that's that's pretty much what helped that transition because there's a lot of D-League coaches and, and things that decide they want to be, you know, a hard ass or take the approach of like, hey, you're not in the NBA for a reason and, and you need to listen to me and this, that, and the third. And he really was like, look, as long as we treat each other with respect, I'm going to give you a chance to play your way out of here. And so I was able to to play well, and we were able to win games as as a unit. And, you know, the the rest in terms of D-League is, is history. CJ, what was your first uh, interpretation of Spencer when you played against him? I'm trying to think the first time. I don't even remember the first time we played against each other. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't sugarcoat it. You can be honest. No, I just thought he was a tall, like, Big point guard, like good vision. He he didn't shoot as many threes. Like he didn't play as freely as he does now because he didn't have that. He didn't have the the confidence of being in the NBA for that long. He didn't have the the leash of being able to miss shots. Like it's crazy how knowing that you can miss shots, knowing that you can break plays, like that gives you a different level of confidence. It I compare it to like this. When I was when I was on scout team my earlier days, my best practices were when I was Steph Curry, Russell Westbrook, Klay Thompson, and Kyrie Irving, those types of guys, because you can break plays and it's okay, it's not frowned upon. But when you're a younger player, there's so much structure around you. You're trying not to make no mistakes. You're looking over your shoulder. You're afraid that, like, oh, if I do this, like, somebody is going to rub somebody the wrong way. So, like, the way you play is completely different and it's timid. But now a lot of times you got these guys who just get the ultimate green light early, and it's easier to flourish because you're not really worried about making mistakes. So I think early on, he was worried about making mistakes. He was a big, strong point guard. He'd get to his spots, shot a lot of mid-range, could finish well around the basket, but he was still trying to figure out a lot of stuff, which is 
what happens, especially when you're a second round pick, because you know it's not guaranteed on that second or third year. So you got to really play well uh, to kind of get that extension. So I think his mindset changed, which allowed his game to change because he had more freedom. And then once he probably got cut, um, this is just me guessing. I don't really know his like how he was thinking, but his his psyche probably changed because he had experienced the bottom of the bottom, like going to the D-League, playing in D-League. So then I felt like when he got that next chance, he was just going like, I'm going to just be the best version of me and whatever happens, happens. You were like, I'm I don't, I'm just going to do, be me. It doesn't, if it's not good enough, whatever. We are unloading the clip. <laughs> there will be no bullets left. If I'm going to China, I'm going out with a bang, baby. Like, I'm going over fifteen going to China then because that's just what it's gonna have to be. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I would have did. So like I, I I get it and I think that that creative freedom, like having that thought process allows you to explore. Like I tell people all the time, like I didn't go to the NBA from Lehigh by just running a play every time coach called it. Like I made a lot of great plays, I made a lot of mistakes, but even now it's like you can't play perfect basketball. Like the best players in the world get paid to miss more shots than they make. And people don't have that perspective, but that's the perspective I have. It's like, look, I'm supposed to miss more than I make, and I'm still a great player. So like if I miss, I miss. It's not because I'm a bad player, it's because the ball just didn't go in. It's the law of averages. I'm with you. What what about <laughs> what about like playing for Kenny? His his style, his he's obviously a player development guru. Like that's yeah. his background. How much did he encourage you early on? Um, you know, a lot. I think once we kind of got through the first year, when I was kind of getting acclimated to the system and stuff, going into the second year, they were really just kind of like, "Hey, if you miss a shot, don't worry about it. Like it's gonna be okay." All that other stuff, and so that really freed me up. Like CJ said, not to just run the offense, not to just, "Hey, I I can't turn the ball over. I can't do this. I can't do that." It freed you up to really go for the play that you saw, you know, or the, or the play that you read. And if you needed to break a play and, and drive then, or or pull up and shoot or whatever it is, then then you did that. And it wasn't just like, hey, they said pass it to the wing, so I'm going to pass it to the wing and then cut through and stand in the corner and, you know, but I didn't mess up, you know what I mean? So uh, I, I really appreciate, you know, the, the coach staff in Brooklyn for allowing me to, to blossom in that sense. Looking at the NBA now, the way the game has changed, uh, I think a lot of people who played in the old NBA talk about it. It's more outside in as opposed to inside out, more three-pointers, faster pace, more fouls, more hand check-ins being called. Um, I think all those things have allowed our game to evolve and allowed our game to change. But looking at some of the rules and things the NBA is trying to implement now, are you a fan of some of the things they're trying to do, the in-season tournament being one of them, um, the reseeding uh, being another. And as you answer, keep this in the back of your mind. I was asked what changes they should make to the NBA as, as someone who's on the executive committee of the NBPA. And I said they should have a one-on-one tournament during All-Star break for money. I like that. That was my request. That was my only request. I said, we can figure out the other stuff later. I said, if you put a one-on-one tournament during All-Star break, you do a dribble limit or whatever um, for bread, televise it, do whatever. I said, you know how many players would, would fly in just to play one-on-one and leave? Like, I'll, I'll fly in, bring some shoes, bring a trainer, take me up. We can play these ones, and then I'm going on vacation to the beach right afterwards, straight from the gym. Exactly. 
that was my request. And they, they weren't rolling with it? I think they're going to pitch it to them, but I'm saying this on the podcast right now so that when people listen to this, they can talk about it. I'll bring it up again, and we can figure out how to monetize it because there could be a, a payout for the winner. We can have side bets on the low. The NBA can approve of us just putting money up hey, like listen, between listen. each other. You, you get into gambling now, be careful now. They might try to terminate your contract for gambling now. This is considered friendly wagers between friends during All-Star break on one-on-one competitions, and they can regulate it however they see fit. Dame proposed the idea that where you can challenge people, right? So you feel like you, you feel like somebody getting a little clout that they don't deserve. You you pull up on them like, look, I want to play you one-on-one. Oh, I ain't mad like at that. that. I'm undefeated currently, so I'm 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 all for that. The ones, the ones are real. I love it. Oh, so you ain't never lost any even in Brooklyn. I ain't never lost even in Brooklyn. Even Kyrie. Even in Brooklyn. Oh. I ain't never lost even in Brooklyn. Oh, he said he never lost. <laughs> so when KD come back, I think you're going to take your first L. Hey, we, we got to figure it out without. I've never played KD. So. CJ, are we good with like smalls on bigs? Or, or is this... Wait, wait, wait. Not like no Shaq stuff. Cause no. Come on. I, I mean, that, I was about to that, say. that would be tough. Like, you're going to put Giannis out there with Ish Smith? Like, that's yeah, a, nah. you know, that's a... That's a very unfair, <laughs> but Maybe it's a part of the wins game. Wins and bigs, yeah, yeah, I like that for sure. I think you split it up; that'll be better because you don't want no five eleven guy guarding a seven footer. Yeah, I was about to say you put me, you put me on Joel or something like that, man. Like, come on, but like man, it's gonna get a little dicey. How how great would it be to have like Jokic and B one on one for sure? You know, for sure, that would be that would be a a slugfest, slugfest, or like Two CJ Dame, seven CJ Dame for everybody to see. Ooh. Hey, hey, <laughs> let's get to it. Let's get to it. Y'all are hilarious. <laughs> but back to my main question. I like I like that discussion. But back to my main question. <laughs> Do you like any of the changes um, that the NBA is proposing? The midseason tournament, I'm not I'm not really a fan of. Um, to my limited knowledge, I haven't really like read too much about all the stuff and, and become really well versed in it. So I'm not. As far as playoff receding and that they, cause they're trying to do it with like conferences, right? And yeah, like be less kinda, travel too. Yeah, less travel. I'm not I'm not opposed to that one if they really feel like that's gonna enhance the game. Um, you know, obviously they would know better than me. They're polling fans, polling all these people. Like and I think the best teams um should should play for a championship. You know, and if, if that's six Eastern Conference teams and you know, 10 Western Conference teams, then we just got to be better. You know what I mean? And and that's just, like, real at the end of the day. But, um, you know, the, the, the midseason tournament thing for, like, the draft picks or whatever and all that stuff, I, I don't know how you really properly incentivize guys to uh, to do that and, and if that's a phenomenal concept. But, you know, they, they get paid the big bucks to make these decisions that – uh, yeah, I'm I'm not diving too far into it. What do you think, C? It's tough. It's tough because, like he said before, we don't know what's going into their thought process of how do we make the game better, how do we attract more viewers, how do we get a new TV deal in two or three years when it's up. But I don't mind necessarily the reseeding. Um, it, like he said before, if it's going to make the game better, if it doesn't affect travel too drastically, I think the reseeding of... The final four, so basically the Western Eastern Conference finals. I think that would be interesting. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I think I'm indifferent right now until I get the full explanation of how they would go about doing it. The midseason tournament is another thing that I just, I don't have enough information on it. They've explained it to me, but I'm just not sure from a 
standpoint of playing a midseason tournament between, I don't know, November, December-ish, there's a winner, there's an incentivized there's an incentive for the winner, but the rest of the teams that play don't. What's the incentive? If you lose in a championship, you essentially played three or four more games than the rest of the league. And they're trying to reduce the schedule to 78 instead of 81, but some teams will end up playing 82 games. It's like, it's an interesting shift in dynamic to where you have to kind of weigh risk versus reward. Like, what's more important, the midseason tournament or the NBA finals? Like, do they have a parade? Like somebody said before, is there a parade for the midseason tournament? Like, do you reward the second place team? Like my brother plays in Europe and there's incentives in his contract based on the cups, first place finish, second place finish. You know what I'm saying? To where it kind of keeps hope alive. Whereas you don't, you lose in the, in the championship and it's just like a wasted four games right. in the middle of the season. My understanding is that they're trying to find some kind of common ground with like the way that the soccer leagues do it, for instance, the Premier League, the English Premier League, they have the FA Cup, which is the battle for all of England, right? But then they also have the Premier League. So you might be dead last in the Premier League, but you also might be able to win or battle as well and have competition in the FA Cup, which is playing teams from all the different leagues. So I don't know how that would work with with the NBA specifically, but it's trying to incentivize teams to still be competitive that are not necessarily going to be in the playoffs. I got you. But in order to do it, you have to have buy-in across the board. You got to have buy-in from stars. It's it's very it's I think it's a lot harder to do than it sounds. To just say to just, to just say let's have a midseason tournament sounds kind of like fun, but when you actually think about what it entails, it, it's difficult to do. I think also like the ratings. You know, we've CJ, we've talked about it too, is like the fact that the ratings haven't been, you know, uh, as strong. Um, and so they're trying to find ways. And this is Adam's nature to be innovative, but you got to be careful now because there's, does that mean you're going to reduce regular season games, CJ? Like, how does, I, I mean, we, we talked about the number 82. I don't know how that would work either. And isn't that dangerous? And if you start, I think they're debating all options, honestly. I think. Anything is on the table at this point in terms of maybe it's 78 games, maybe it's finding that happy medium. Uh, I think everybody's kind of going through that, that process of figuring out what makes the most sense and how to go about doing it. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, Spencer, which was the fact that Vince Carter is the first NBA player to play in four decades. Yeah. Um, what was your first Vince memory watching and then also playing against? I, I said this on, on his pod, actually. Like, my biggest Vince memory is uh, the backboard play that they got. Oh, yeah. Because to me, it's more than anything else, like, all right, jumping over somebody, we've never seen in a game over a seven-footer, but we've seen people jump over people, right? So you kind of are, like, primed. All right, the dunk contest... We've seen windmills, things like that. So we've never seen anybody do it like Vince, but we're still primed. To say, like, hey, look, just throw, like, we're, we're out of bounds. Just throw it off the backboard. He'll go find it. From the 28-foot mark, that's ridiculous. There's a reason nobody else has, like, really tried to do something like that. Like, that's, to me, being a basketball player, even as athletic as people are now, it's like, that, that just so it sound, it sounds crazy to me. So like that's my main Vince memory, like and and one that's probably gonna be you know seared in my mind for, you know for 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 forever because to me it just sounds wild like 
throw just ricochet it off the glass to the other side, and he'll he'll find it. What about playing against him? You know, since since I've started playing in the league, uh, you know, he's kind of been the same role he's in now, uh, mostly a reserve and shoots a lot of threes and and stuff like that. So that those are those are all my main Vince memories from like playing against him. I don't have. Uh, like phenomenal like stories to tell or anything like that you know I didn't play my first two years and you know after that's you know the last couple years it's it's pretty much been like catch a shoot good vet pick and pop you know stuff like that um you hear the stories though you know he shoots left lefty righty all that almost equally things like that you hear all the the crazy stuff um but but those are my like playing against the memories CJ do you do you have a favorite uh, VC memory I think when he dunked on um, Frederick Weiss, yeah, that was nasty. I think that's one of my favorites in the dunk contest he did, where he did the three sixty, and he dunked it, and like his pogo stick, like his second jump was so crazy that he dunked it and then like he touched the ground and jumped again after the three sixty and like spun. <laughs> yeah, and it was just like that's how explosive he is. It's crazy. Like he's got like rubber band legs. But I would say those are those are the moments. I mean, anything anything when he was in that North Carolina jersey, he was just crazy bouncy. Like Vince then, Vince in Toronto, crazy bounce. Um, and then even when he bounced around from from team to team and like continued to his rise to stardom Eastern Conference in New Jersey, like doing all of that stuff, he was still explosive. Well, what's crazy about the dunk over Weiss is that, and you can see Vin Baker calling for it. But Vin, who's like Vin's, you know Vinny at all? He's the greatest man. He's such a great guy, and, and he's really found his uh, his second career now, coaching the Bucks. But um, he wanted he wanted a lob, yeah. and if you watch, if you go back and watch the play slowly, which Spencer and I were doing just now. But CJ, you gotta you gotta see this. He's calling for the lob, and he looks like he's angry. When, when Vince is about to do whatever he's about to do. So I've asked Vin about this, and he's like, yeah, I wanted the ball. I thought I was going to get a lob dunk. But he, so, it, and like, that's what's so crazy about that play is when you see a guy uh, who's seven feet and is, is basically trying to protect the rim, it doesn't even cross your mind, even as you're playing, that somebody's going to jump over him. It's so it, it's like it's in, it's 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 unfathomable. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I think I think the fact that he wanted a lob and didn't get the lob made him more angry, and that's why he punished him. <laughs> like he was pissed. Like you, you really not gonna throw me a lob, and he took his anger out on the footer and punched on him. And Frederick Weiss was like seven three. I think he was like a legit. He was yeah. He wasn't. A lot of guys are like six ten and a quarter for yeah. sure. Like how big is Jarrett? Jarrett's six eleven. Jarrett's a fake footer. Katie's a footer. Kitty legit, he legit seven foot with a, with a handle and ratchet. How about Nurk? Nurk seven, see, right? N- Nurk six thirteen, like a mug. <laughs> Nurk tall, man. Nurk is. You don't realize it until you stand beside him and watch them go up to grab the rim without really standing. Like they don't have to jump to like get to towards the rim. Even white side, like their arms are so long. When they like reach up, they can low key grab the rim like flat foot. That's crazy. CJ, who is the guy that you, I'm curious, like, that you, uh, when you first played against, or Spencer, you two, where uh, you thought they were absolutely, maybe you thought they were, like, maybe 6'9 or 6'8, and they ended up being a lot a lot bigger or a lot smaller than you thought. And you were like, man, really? Brian, man. Brian is not no 6'7 or 6'8, man. Brian tall. Thank you. Six, nine. That man got to be 6'9, 275. He got to be. 
He gotta be. And he's so he's so muscular and white, it's hard to tell how tall he is. You know what I'm saying? Cause he like a tree stump, like big. So you be you be sleeping on how tall he really is. Man, that man is tall, man. I I know we list him in like six ten or something. He gotta be seven foot. I don't care what he say. He said he's six twelve. <laughs> if he get mad at this pod, like I'll tell him to his face. He's six foot. He, he 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 already got mad at CJ, right? What? He know he's tall as hell though, so like he can't deny it. He got mad. <laughs> he got mad at CJ about a year and a half ago, a year and change ago. He came on the pod, but it was kind we of was a, fake it was mad a fake mad for the, it was for fake the ratings. Mad. Oh, it was we fake mad. But, that, but you know, there's no context on Instagram or Twitter, so people just saw the quote and they were like, oh. KD and CJ are, are mad at each other. It was such bullshit. They seen us fake arguing on Twitter. CJ Mello's big dude. Mello, yeah, Mello big. I don't know how tall he is, but he's tall and he's strong. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say, you don't want to get caught on a block. Caught on a block with him. That's not, a, that's not fun. <laughs> he's Grown got a huge stuff. ass, too. Whoa. <laughs> he's, he, he, he's, a t- he's tough. Is, is that fair to say? Hey, you said it, not me. <laughs> Say what you will. <laughs> hey, I might have had a little Pinot before this pod. I'm about to go have some right now. Are you a wine guy, Spencer? Yeah. Oh, CJ, we, we got to maybe cue the wine music. Cue the wine music, please. <sighs> Although I've been sick, I have been fortunate enough to travel with wine on this trip. And I'm about to have a 2007... Uh, Grace from Domain Serene out in Oregon. I also got the Frank's Family Cab, which is a great price point uh, for cabs for those of you that like to spend about $33 to $65. And uh, I also brought Italy's Finest. I'm not going to have all three of those tonight, obviously. I'm just going to have a glass before I go to sleep with my dinner. But those are three great options for all listeners out there. I'm sure I've brought them up before. 2007 Grace is, is a pretty penny. It's going to cost you. Um, but it is very delicious. Uh, volcanic soil. Um, all the things you like in one, you can pair it with whatever. After two glasses, they all taste the same anyway, as we like to say. <laughs> but the Franks the Franks family is a Myers-Leonard special. Myers put me on to that um, out in Oregon. So shout out to my guy, Myers. Spencer, how about you? Any uh, favorite wines especially? Usually when I go out, I've been doing a lot of Camus lately. We're going to have to get Spencer some Oregon Pinot, CJ. I think that's on you. Yeah, uh, for him coming on this pod, text me your address, bro. Um, I'll have it sent to you. I, I owe Jordan a case or two cases at this point anyway, so uh, I'll, add, uh, I'll add you to the list. My man. <laughs> Last question from the fan. This is from a fan. Is uh, Are you ever going to bring back the Afro? Ooh. This is an in- Instagram question. That's actually that's actually a good question. Uh I'm gonna be very honest with the pod. I gotta ask my mom. Wow. Yeah, I gotta ask my mom. I don't. I think they like the uh, the professional look. Ooh. Okay. So my mom want me to cut my hair so bad. <laughs> <laughs> she hate my nappy fro. Yeah, man. So I think I, I think I gotta ask permission. It looked like you, CJ, were wearing. Um, it looked like your hair was is a little long right now. By the way, it's braid length long, and my girl is terrified. <laughs> You you gonna do the uh, the hairstyle everybody got right now with the braids on the top? That's the only reason I haven't done it is because it's man I I missed the wave I wanted to be the first one on and I missed the wave and now I feel like I'm just jumping on the wave if I do it so I'm trying to wait for it to die down so I can get my braids off before I cut it. There you go. <laughs> Last fan question is uh well one says all the love from India so there you go. I appreciate you. And then the book of Khan why do they call you the mayor? Oh that, yeah that's easy that 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 came from Colorado so. Um, 
you know, after my freshman season, we were trying to recruit a lot of guys, obviously, just like any college. And um, they were trying to recruit Cali really heavily. And so being from there, all the recruits would kind of reference like, hey, you know, I've seen Spencer's freshman year. I know him from high school, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so they were like, man, it's, it's like he's a politician. And so they started calling me the mayor because I would like try to get all the recruits. And then we had a couple successful classes and they would kind of talk about me helping like sign some of those guys. And that's that's where I got it. And it kind of stuck. I love that. That's great. That's a cool story, man. All right, C. But I appreciate you coming on the pull-up pod, man. For sure. Best of luck the rest of the season. Keep doing your thing, man. I hope you become an all-star, bro. Pulling for you. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, backslash pull-up with CJ, or wherever you get your shows. And don't forget to pull-up.